Welcome to the Marketing Growth Podcast. I'm Shane Barker and I'm excited to have Simon Yankin, the CEO and co-founder of FanPlayer with us today. FanPlayer uses behavioral segmentation technology powered by AI to analyze website traffic and give users real-time insights about how to improve and personalize their interactions with users. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Simon's entrepreneurial journey, the technology behind FanPlayer, and increasing website conversions. Before we begin, I wanted to take a minute to talk to my listeners. If you're struggling to make the most of your website traffic, check out FanPlayer's behavioral segmentation patented technology. You can also reach out to me and my team for website redesign and development, conversion rate optimization, which is also known as CRO, SEO, which is search engine optimization being found online, and lead generation services. To learn more about our services, visit Shane Barker, that's S-H-A-N-E-B-A-R-K-E-R.com now. We're excited today. We have Simon Yankin here, um, is going to be here from FanPlayer. We've got um, a, a phenomenal, this is, I don't want to, I don't want to give all the good stuff out in the beginning, but you've, I don't know how many companies you've invested in. There's, I feel like there's only two that you haven't invested in. Like I've done my research and you are a seasoned investor and I'm, I'm excited to let everybody know about what you guys got going over there at FanPlayer. But I figure before we jump in and, and go into the hot and heavy and the fun stuff, I always like to get to know our guests a little bit, right? We, you and I talked a little bit out of the, off the podcast about where you're from and everything, but I want the audience to kind of get a little premise of, of who Simon is and, and who, as, who he is as an individual and, and what he's done. So Simon, where did, you, where did you grow up, man? I grew up in Melbourne, Australia, Shane, and uh, had an interesting career living in Australia, Melbourne, Sydney, moved to London, and then from London to Silicon Valley. So it's been a journey. That's awesome. Yeah, we, we were talking about that. So when you said, hey, I was from Australia, so my brother actually went to UTS there in Sydney and we've been to Melbourne and, and awesome. It's funny. So my brother actually started off in London and then went to Australia and then came back to, and he's in San Francisco now. So you guys have kind of, you know, similar hitting a few of the same countries. Yeah, true. It's, I still remember when I first moved from Australia to, to London and, you know, this is well before Uber. And so you get into a black cab and immediately the cab driver is trying to listen to your accent and figure out where you're from. So when I first arrived, he'd immediately identify me as an Australian and start going on about, hey, mate, we just beat you at cricket. You know, you guys are, or you guys are terrible at rugby and this sort of thing. <laughs> so I really... Sort of spurred me to make a conscious effort to sound more English. And then I went through a period where I get in a black cab and the cabbie would say, Where are you from then? South Africa? And that's kind of, you know, no, was, that's quite it's funny accents and where people live. Trying to throw people off. I know, you know, it's so funny when I, because when I travel, it's, you know, you don't think you have an accent. Like, I just don't think I have an accent until I go somewhere and they go, where are you from? And I'm like, why? And they're like, we have an accent. And you don't really, you know, you think that you, this is how I talk and people hear me. And I think it's funny. So now you try to, when you get into the cabs or Ubers, now you try to throw people off. I like you try to throw the accent a little bit and see if you can fool them. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I think um, it's been a really um, great, the connection in the tech world between Australia and the West Coast of the US. Mm. I think there's a lot of tech companies in Australia that come to this market to really take off. And I've been involved in quite a few of those. And then I, people often say to me, hey, what's Australia like? And 
honestly, it's so similar to living here on the West Coast. It's feel that people coming from the West Coast in the US, going to East Coast of Australia, you fit right in. I'm sure you found that shame with your trip. We did. We we went up on the, the coast. We did the Gold Coast. My dad, my brother and I got a van and we went up and it did just the culture, the food, the people. I mean, we had nothing but a great time. Let's put it this way. There was one night we ended up at a foam party. I mean, with my dad and my brother, I don't know how it happened or we were like hanging out and there's some girls and this, and actually, you know, we're at a phone party. I'm looking at my dad. I'm like, I'm at a phone party with my dad and we, nothing but the best time. I mean, just between the, the scuba diving and the people, I mean, just, I mean, I, I can't wait to get back. This was many, many moons ago that we went to Australia, but it's definitely on my list now that we're opening back up to, to check back out and go back out there. So, so in Australia, how big was your family growing up? That's all I had, um, Family of four, four, four kids, and we had quite a big, um, wider family of cousins and aunts and uncles. And um, you know, we spent a lot of time with grandparents. We had grandparents that, um, on my mother's side, he ran. He was CEO of a hotel in Melbourne, the Windsor Hotel, which is still there. And then on my father's side, uh, there was a family business ink and glass, which went back generations. And we used to go and share a holiday house with our cousins at the beach. So really big family and, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of nice reasons to want to go back to Melbourne, but of course we can't at the moment with the pandemic. Yeah, that stopped us. I'm, so that, I love that. I tell you, I've always been, and I tell people this, that people that have families that used to get together for family reunions or had very close families, like my family was pretty close, but we never had 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 people that were, you know, at, at a certain, you know, a beach house or something like that. So I'm, I've always been a little envious of that. So that's awesome. What, um, give us any interesting facts growing up, anything like that you think, hey, most people don't know this, or this was something that was kind of interesting out of the Norman? Yeah, one thing that I think is really interesting that a lot of people here probably don't know about Melbourne is that the gold rush in Melbourne happened around the same time or a little bit of gold rush in San Francisco. Oh. And it was really, you know, it was in the 1850s and it was equally as big a thing as it was here. And actually on my on my father's mother's side of the family, her grandfather and two of his brothers came to California, came to San Francisco from Somerset in England. And the three brothers were here working in the gold rush and two of them stayed and they actually founded a shipping line in San Francisco called the Pacific Shipping Line. And he was, his name was Captain Charles Goodall. He had a huge house in San Francisco overlooking the bay. Um, they were so big. They built like the Monterey Wharf. Um, wow. And he's got, you can actually go to the Oakland Cemetery in Millionaire's Row. And there's this incredible uh, mausoleum of Charles Goodall. But his brother, John Goodall, who's my grandmother's grandfather, he left during the gold rush, went to Melbourne for the Melbourne gold rush. And um, he found his niche in business as a stockbroker. So essentially uh, buying and selling shares in gold mining companies. We're not quite a few of gold mining company boards. And in 1908, he actually built 
the family beach house that we still own today uh, south of Melbourne. So that's ah, awesome. Kept the family together and has this San Francisco gold rush, Melbourne gold rush connection. Man, I love that. And so that's, man, that's, and I didn't know there was a gold rush in Australia. I mean, that's obviously in California, you know, 49ers and all the other fun stuff. We were taught that, but I didn't know that in Australia. That's interesting. I never, I never knew that as a fact. Yeah, Melbourne was actually at the time, I think one of the richest and um, biggest economies anywhere in the world because of the gold rush. It was quite incredible. And it means that um, you actually go there not just even in Melbourne, but some of the gold rush towns. Just incredible architecture all created by the money for gold. It's quite amazing. Wow, that's incredible. And then you, and you're currently, and we say the Bay Area, but you're currently what, in Palo Alto? Palo Alto. And I remember when I moved here from England, it was to work at a company that Reuters had bought. I was on the executive committee at Reuters and we ended up IPOing the company and talking to one of the Reuters executive directors about where to live before I went from London to California. He said, whatever you do, don't live in San Francisco. I said, really, David, why? And he said, well, haven't you heard of Mark Twain? I said, yeah. And he said, well, he had a famous saying, the coldest, <laughs> yeah, I guess you know the saying, right? The, the, yeah, yeah. The worst, the coldest winter he ever, experience of summer in San Francisco. And so, so my colleague said, look, Simon, don't live in San Francisco. You've got to live in Palo Alto. So that's, that's why I'm here. That is too funny. You're like, all right, sounds good, David. I trust you. Not a problem. So you moved to Palo Alto. What, um, what, was, your, what was your first job out of college or where did you go to college? I went to Monash University, which is one of the biggest universities in Australia. I think it's one of the leading uh, universities in the world and I did science uh, with in mathematics and also law and ended up um, figuring out as a undergraduate well seems like law is the easiest most ready-made profession to go into and I didn't really see myself as being like wearing a white lab coat and spending my day stuck inside a lab so I thought I know I'll go to I'll be a lawyer and so that's how I started it. There we go. I love it. Boy, I mean, that's, that's something new. So you've got a science and then also a law background. So that's, and so what was your first job out of college? Uh, so I went to a law firm, which is, um, it's now called Herbert Smith Freehills, which is one of the biggest law firms in the world. Back then it was called Mill, Hamilton and Durham in Melbourne. And, uh, you know, it's quite interesting that, I started there and then um, five years later, they made me a partner. And I know I was the youngest partner ever because they said, Simon, now you're a partner. We've never signed a partnership deed. Here's the file. I gave you this huge file of, of a docu unsigned documents. It's your job to, to make that into a signed partnership deed, which I did. And then I was looking through and I saw, hmm, I'm the equal youngest partner ever. So I did um, 10 years as a partner at Herbert Smith Freehills. I loved it. It's a fantastic firm. And then there was an opportunity with a client to go and work as general counsel for Reuters in London. Mm -hmm. And then that was really how I started my, my um, career in technology. 
So how does that, so this is, so this is why I always ask these questions and I want to know where people went to school, where they grew up. And once again, so you were, you started off in law and that's where you were. And then how did you guys come up with the idea to start um, fan player? Like how did that all play out? I mean, obviously it sounds like that was your foot into the Silicon Valley. And then from there, obviously opportunities came about. That's very true. So at fan player, the three founders, we're all from a financial services tech or background. And what a lot of people don't realize about Reuters, because you think Reuters news and um, the company went from Reuters to become Thomson Reuters and then it's now called Refinitiv, but it's actually a, really a tech company. Mm. And so from the news came the first ticker services, stock ticker, stock quotes. Mm. And so it really became pretty much mostly a tech company, information and tech company. And so I essentially moved into Reuters, the technology business, and started to get involved a lot in the in Reuters actual business, doing acquisitions, working on the executive committee. And I, I started hiring in my department, people I thought could go on to run the company. And in fact, one of my hires, Tom Glaser, ended up being CEO of Thomson Reuters. And one of the other guys that I hired uh, was an executive director at Reuters and ended up as, for quite a, a while, as CEO at eBay, Devin Wernick. So I think it did a good job hiring people. Okay. And as I was seeing people that I'd hired move into the business, I kept saying to the CEO, Peter, I'd like, I'd like to go and work in the business. And he's saying, no, no, we need you here <laughs> doing the legal work. And then finally he agreed. And I moved to Tipco in Silicon Valley, which started out as a company providing digital market data systems for deal bank dealing rooms. So if you think about it, it's a way where on a dealing room floor, you can manipulate data feeds, you can display information in the, the best possible way. And so getting into that market, essentially TIBCO originally was FinTech and essentially the three of us founders, myself, Rajiv Sankara, Derek Edelman, I'd worked with both of them in different companies, but we were all from a fintech background, mm. we saw that the power of data in banking and financial services and the way data analytics, intelligence and trading really facilitated the growth that, that financial services saw over the last several decades. We just saw as e-commerce was emerging, mm. And we saw how Amazon was succeeding and many other companies that really that business is based very much on data. So if you can understand the data, the analytics, the intelligence behind that, then there's a way that we as a company and we at FanPlayer can really empower those businesses to be more data centric and really perform better based on understanding the data. That was how we started. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. And so, 
So explain to us a little bit how fan player works, like the technology you guys created, obviously having a FinTech background, you guys came together, said, Hey, there's an opportunity, this, e- this thing we call e-commerce. We're seeing Amazon. We see all the big players going in. Hey, now's an opportunity. So tell us a little bit about the technology. Yeah, so that, that's a really great question. And what our technology does is really exemplified by the company's mission statement, which is making behavioral data actionable. And what we realized early on in the company is that every visitor to a e-commerce site, or in fact, any site, leaves a trail of data and that data tells you a lot about those people. And essentially that journey, that data, the data journey that is created by the countless millions of visitors, billions of visitors on sites everywhere around the world, that is telling those businesses why those people are there, what they're looking for, what their interests are, and ultimately, if you can turn that data to advantage, if you can actually understand your visitors' intentions by their data, then ultimately you can provide them a much better experience. And so really how our technology works is really understanding the data created by visitors and then giving the power to our clients, to the businesses we work with, of personalizing the journey for every individual visitor. So you get the best, most most relevant, interesting experience. And if you actually analyze what happens on any site, this is something that is true across verticals, across geographic boundaries, that most of the typically at least 50% or thereabouts of visitors land on a site, have a reason to go there. And let, and yet 99% of those visitors have left within about two or three page views and in less than you know two minutes in time. So there's a huge drop-off in the visitor journey when they land on a site to when they actually leave. And what that translates to, if you think think about your own experience and you're going to a retail site or any e-commerce site and you can't find what you're looking for, it's very easy to get distracted. It's very easy to jump onto the next thing and that's really what happens. And so if as a business you can better respond to why people have come there in the first place, be more personalised and provide really a a better, more personal experience, people get more engaged. And the more engaged you are, the more time you spend on the site, and then the more likely you are to check out or to turn into a qualified lead or really whatever the business objective is. It's really a strong correlation between a personalized experience that's relevant to visitors, getting visitors engaged and spending more time on the site. That inevitably leads to a better business result. Thanks, listeners. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Simon Yankin and that it helped you learn how behavioral data segmentation can help you provide better experiences to your website visitors and drive more conversions.
On my next episode, we'll cover topics like AI and how it can help you with user segmentation and behavioral targeting. If you like what you hear, be sure to tune into the Marketing Growth Podcast.